Our New Testament reading is Mark 7, 1 through 13. We are continuing to preach verse by verse through Mark's gospel. So this is our sermon text, too. Now when the Pharisees had gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washings of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In March of 2003, soon after 9-11, just a few years, Dwight Watson drove a tractor and trailer draped in banners and American flags onto the Washington Mall between the Washington Monument and the Vietnam Vets uh, Memorial. Maybe some of you remember it. Um, he claimed um, via a phone call uh, that his trailer was full of explosives made from fertilizer. He said he was doing this in protest of recent policies that had been passed that he believed would bankrupt tobacco farmers in North Carolina, of which he was one. He said, I don't care though if I die. I'm ready to go to heaven. Um, he was a veteran. Um, he was a farmer. He was apparently some form of a professed Christian, which made him a very strange terrorist to be threatening the U.S. Capitol. The lead negotiator um, for the FBI at that time was a man named Chris Voss, and he retells this story in his book, Never Split the Difference. When he got to the scene, he told the other negotiators that the most important thing they needed to do was understand this man's religion. And so Voss spent three nail-biting days on the phone with the man trying to understand what was his reason for being there instead of logically trying to get him to come out. He spoke to the man for three days. And after that, understanding his motivations, his belief, he was able to negotiate a peaceful surrender. And the lesson Voss took away from this experience is that everyone has a religion. Sometimes it involves God and sometimes it doesn't. But regardless, it's incredibly powerful. 
And he said, if you want to understand anyone in life you need to deal with, you need to understand their religion. Hmm. What's strange about that, though, is currently 47% of Americans, um, or no more than that, more than 50% of Americans do not describe themselves as religious. Actually, many Christians today want to distance themselves from ever being described as religious. Now, the study showed about 30% of Americans would rather describe themselves as spiritual, and a growing percent, about 20, would say they are neither. However, Voss is a man trusted for his insights into humanity, trusted by families in their moment of greatest need, and he says the key is learning someone's religion. Well, of course, that must just mean what is the definition of religion we're using. Voss says religion and worldview are words you can largely use interchangeably. Religion is your framework of ideas that help you understand the world. Your beliefs, your values, your habits, your assumptions that affect your decisions, and your emotions. And he says religion is powerful because it exercises authority over us. It doesn't just influence us, it tells us what to do. Voss says, whatever experts or whatever market or God or society matters most to you will determine what you believe is fair and just, and you will defer to its authority. And he says, everywhere you look, if you look at someone, there are clues to their religion. If you listen to their ideas, their beliefs, how they dress, what they do, you'll begin to figure out someone's religion. Mark 7 records for us Jesus and the Pharisees' longest conflict over what makes some religion good or bad. The question for us is not if we have a religion, but if it's good or bad. Because religion, as Voss has said, is not something relegated to really traditional churches, the Pharisees, or the Puritans in the book The Scarlet Letter. You can find people with just as passionate religious-sounding convictions about their diets, their parenting philosophy, or recycling. We all have a religion. The question, is it good or bad? So this sermon is really the first part of a two-part sermon because verses 1 through 13 are really part of a longer narrative that runs from verse 1 to verse 23. These verses compare Jesus and the Pharisees' competing theologies of what makes someone clean or unclean before God. Verses 1 through 13, our text for today, focus on Jesus' rejection of the Pharisees' religious authority, and 14 through 23 focuses on Christ's corrective teaching to the people and his disciples. This conflict is critical. The Pharisees were very religious people. That's pretty much the only thing most of us know about them. The problem is they had a counterfeit, though, of the biblical faith. So, today, the question is, could you be accepting a counterfeit religion when Christ offers a real thing? Christ's criticism of the Pharisees provides for us warning signs of what makes religion good or bad. Christ's words will expose religious externalism, religion that undermines the Bible's authority, and any kind of spirituality that avoids obedience. If these tendencies are true about you, 
the check engine light is on. Something's wrong. And so we all need to learn to recognize and reject our counterfeit religions so we can experience true religion, knowing God and trusting in Christ. So Jesus' disciples, they need to recognize and reject externalism, ever putting man's law above God's law and any belief system that avoids obedience to him. So the first sign of bad religion is what we call externalism. Chapter 7 begins with a very popular Jesus. This is his last preaching tour through Galilee. And it's caused a big enough stir that the king of Galilee's heard about him. The disciples we know have spread out and have been preaching his name. Jesus has just taught a crowd and fed a crowd of more than 5,000 men and women and children. Chapter 6 ended saying people everywhere he went recognized him. And everywhere he went, people were trying to touch him and get healing from him. Jesus has everyone's attention right now. And now, once again, the, Israel's religious leaders come down from their ivory tower to investigate the Galilean teacher. The experts of the law have come to see if this prophet and this apparent revival are legit. This commission is made up of Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem. Now, a Pharisee is not a job description. It's actually more like a denomination. A scribe, on the other hand, is a job. It's a professional scholar of the Old Testament and Jewish tradition. These men together are coming to see if what Jesus is doing should get the stamp of approval from Jerusalem. The Pharisees um, are from all over. A Pharisee, the term literally means in the original language, one who is set apart. The Pharisees were the men of that day who had dedicated themselves to trying to promote obedience to God's law in Israel. They practiced a strict and faithful form of Judaism. It would be the conservative, evangelical, biblical kind. The Pharisees knew their nation was really in trouble. They knew how few people were faithful to God, and they decided it's our responsibility to try and be a good example. And we will be faithful no matter what happens. And so they got the name Pharisee, um, not because they set themselves apart from all the pagan Gentiles, but they also set themselves apart from any non-practicing Jew who they said did not know the law. We often characterize the Pharisees as the villains in the Gospels. And that's fair given Jesus' condemnation of them and their treatment of him. However, we should also know that if Jesus had to be lumped into one of the Jewish sects of his day, it would have been of the party of the Pharisees. The people in Israel and the Pharisees would have viewed Jesus as one of them. And it's actually clear, if you read the Gospels carefully, there are many places where the Pharisees are curious where they, what he has to say. They invite him to meals and he accepts invitations. That would not be something you would do if you were simply sworn enemies. Perhaps the reason Jesus is debating with Pharisees and talking to them all the time is because it's the same reason you argue with your spouse the most. You're one of them. He's with them. These are his people. And so Pharisees and scribes come commissioned to investigate the popular figure and what he's accomplishing in Galilee. They're wondering, is he finally succeeding? Are we seeing someone who can promote the kind of obedience we know the nation needs? Well, they're disappointed. Instead of finding a great success, they see his disciples violating the most basic and simple practices 
they've been trying to promote holiness with. His disciples are eating with unwashed hands. Verses 3 and 4 pause and actually explain these washings they refer to. For the Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they deserve, such as washing of cups. By the way, just interestingly enough for me, uh, the word washing of cups and pots and vessels and couches is the word for baptism. Um, So these washings were not about personal cleanliness. The germ theory of disease did not exist. This is not about hygiene. This is a matter of ceremonial cleansing. It's interesting that the author of this gospel has to pause and explain these traditions and washings to the reader. He assumes the people reading it will not know what he's talking about. This is actually one of the reasons we believe the Gospel of Mark was originally written, written to Gentiles who didn't live close to Israel. He lived, they lived probably in Rome, right? They didn't know about Jewish practices. He says these washings come from the traditions of the elders. And the Pharisees are the ones who are dedicated to following the law according to the tradition of the elders, how it's always been done. The Old Testament law did require ceremonial handwashing for priests, for those who served in the temple. And Jews had to be ceremonially washed if they were going to join in and eat from a sacrifice. However, over time, the ceremonial law was extended by tradition, especially as Greek culture came to Israel and the Jews had to begin living among pagans. Well, the laws that were originally given for priests became the expectation for all Jews. Why? Well, because they realized we should all be concerned with remaining clean. We need to be set apart from the world. We can't be intertwined with paganism. And all of these traditions were eventually compiled into a book called the Mishnah. And interestingly, of its 63 chapters, about 25% of that book deals with how you are to wash and when. Now, special attention was always given of these washings when they came from the marketplace. Because out in public, you almost guaranteed you would bump into someone who was a Gentile or ceremonially unclean. So what are the disciples doing? The Pharisees ask, why are they eating with unclean hands? They have a standard and your disciples aren't meeting it. We have traditions for a reason. We have a fence around holiness to keep us from breaking the law. Jesus is uninterested in their standard, isn't he? The problem is because they have a superficial standard. Again, look at verse 6. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines as the commandments of men. They're hypocrites because their religion is external. Again, it's really interesting in verse 3, it says that the Pharisees and all the Jews do these washings. We know all the Jews don't do these washings. Did I just, I'm dead? All right, well, I'm going to keep going, and uh, we're either going to, we can move that over, yeah. Or, Dylan, you can look for batteries for me. Um, They're hypocrites, because their religion is only external. Notice in verse 3, 
He says all the Jews do this. But we know all the Jews don't do it because the disciples aren't doing it. But it seems that in Jesus' lifetime, faithful Jew, being a faithful Jew had become a matter of going along with external traditions alone. Jesus rejects this externalized Judaism. And we must reject externalism today. The text is not only and primarily concerned with the errors the Pharisees made about ceremonial cleansing and the Korban rule. This is so important. Remember, the first readers of the gospel were not Jewish. They had never practiced these things. The reason this teaching is here is to give concrete examples of bad religion. Today's sermon is largely going to be me trying to give concrete examples of when this happens in 2024. Because again, look at verses 4 and 13. Verse 4 says the Jews had many traditions like this. In verse 13, Jesus says they have many erroneous practices like this. Jesus isn't condemning korban or washings. He's giving a view of religion based on bad examples. So today we have the uncomfortable work of applying this teaching to 2024 and to ourselves. Thank you, Dylan. I got it. The Pharisees' traditions about washings were a first century example of externalism and one likely none of you struggle with. However, externalism is alive and well. Externalism, what I mean is, it's any external attribute, experience, or action that you can do that you think makes you closer to God or makes someone a good person. And in fact, we would usually judge someone if they don't have these external traits. For the Pharisees, it's keeping the tradition of the elders. But the question is, what external things do you do that you think bring you closer to God? Jesus rejects externalism because it only deals with surface appearances and not the real substance. For Jesus, godliness deals with more than what people act like on the outside, what they wear, what books they own, what lingo they know, or where they go to church. Frankly, the problem is these external things are much easier to do. It's easier to buy the right theological books than read them or understand them. It's easy enough for women to buy the right kinds of modest clothes than becoming a godly woman. Same goes for men. It's easy enough for us to grow beards, at least most of us, or try to look like a man worthy of respect than actually grow in integrity. This is why Jesus called them hypocrites. Not because they weren't passionate, but because they were playing a role. They confused looking the part with actually being the part. Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah to prove that God has always rejected this kind of worship. It's nothing new. God is not interested in lip service or worship that goes through the right motions. Here in Wisconsin, how many people identify as Christians? A lot. How many people does that identification mean nothing to them? It's lip service. They're Christian because their family was. Or they go to church on Christmas and Easter. They're Catholic because they eat fish on Fridays. They're Lutheran because they were confirmed at 12. They're saved because they say the sinner's prayer. But God is not interested in any of these things if they don't go beyond lip service. The other Old Testament reading from Isaiah takes this warning actually a step further. 
the words of Isaiah are shocking. God says, I want you to stop bringing sacrifices. I don't like them. The response would have been back, but you said you liked them. You told us to bring them. He says, who told you to come into my courts on the Sabbath or on the new moon and these festivals? And the answer would be, you invented them. You told us we had to come. But God is uninterested in them if their hearts remain unrepentant and if they are unfaithful in the rest of their lives. And that is a scary thing, that even doing the right things without sincerity, without integrity, is no good. God will forgive no one's sin on the last day because they went to a solid and biblical church. Externalism is so dangerous, it can make even good things superficial. At its best, all it does is succeeding in keeping up appearances. And there's a high cost of that kind of externalism. Studies show today that nearly 40% of Americans overspend, and these are only the ones who will admit it, to impress others. This is the keeping up with the Joneses phenomenon. They go into financial debt trying to have the right kind of car, house, lifestyle. It seems like everybody else can afford. But obviously, the sad irony is that most likely the people you're trying to keep up with have the same debt-based overspending and lifestyle. But I wonder what percentage of people, in even more than that, are trying to keep up appearances at church. Frankly, it's probably why so many people only go twice a year. It's a lot of work to hold it together. This kind of externalism is no friend to you. And there are many such cases. In verse 8, Jesus now answers the Pharisees' question. So why don't we keep your traditions? And in it, his answer, we get the second sign of religion gone bad. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. These traditions they have, have now been given more authority than the very words of God. The Pharisees judge Jesus and the disciples based on what is passed down. Notice how Jesus responds to them, judging them based on what is written in the word of God. All religion goes bad when any authority, any law, any expert, any tradition, or anything else is elevated above the word of God. It's crazy. Today in the West, many people assume they have the right to stand over the Bible and judge it and decide what in it is right and wrong. Sometimes this looks like an outright rejection of the Bible because it contradicts some lifestyle or value we have. Sometimes it looks like only using the Bible when it supports the right kind of perspective, narrative, cultural movement, or political movement I actually am more loyal to. In this case, all it is is biblical confirmation bias. But the most common authority we put over the Bible is ourselves. The Bible says this, but I get to decide. I decide what God is like. I decide what is pleasing to God. I decide what I need. I will give the Bible a hearing, but at the end of the day, it's up to me. In individualism, every person gets to be their own God. This is so common today, it's hard to, for us to understand how radical an idea that is. The Pharisees would have never dreamed of having pride like this. Their problem was actually more subtle. 
They had taken traditions, as good as they have, may have been at any point, and made them more important than following direct commands of God. Traditions, like religion, are not a bad thing, but they come, become corrupt when people are more devoted to following tradition than they are God's direct commands. You ready for more examples? My dad had a quiet and personal faith. Every morning, if I got up early enough, I could see my dad quietly eating his breakfast with a Bible open and that month's copy of Table Talk open to the devotions. Every Sunday, my dad took us to church. Every Sunday, I watched my dad put an offering in the plate. And every Sunday, he listened to the Bible with an open Bible, a sermon with an open Bible. I'm so thankful for my dad. I'm so thankful for his consistent and personal faith and getting to just see it happen in his everyday life. Those practices were so important to him because he experienced Christian conversion in college after he met Christians who for the first time had a faith that seemed personal to them. He'd always gone to church his whole life, but from these friends he learned what personal faith in Jesus Christ meant and looked like. This kind of personal faith is the tradition and legacy of modern evangelical Christians. This is a faith that values small group Bible studies, a faith that wants to read the Bible personally. Of course, we know these practices have not always existed because there was a time when most Christians couldn't read, let alone afford a book. We today talk about personal evangelism, knowing God personally, and even Johnny Cash sang a great song about your own personal Jesus. He's someone who hears your prayers, someone who cares. And for my dad, maybe you're like him. Like many of you, this was the first place you experienced real communion with God and a place where you daily keep yourself in check with his word. Learning from examples and traditions like this is tradition done right. But even personal faith is subject to corruption. It's easy in our day, when we don't want to be described as religious, to prefer a personal faith to any kind of organized or institutional religion. And it's easy to justify that based on my strong personal faith, and we convince ourselves we can be Christians without the church. Church attendance and church membership becomes kind of an optional add-on for the people who like that sort of thing. We have set aside the bride of Christ for a faith that is personal to us. We have traded pastors who shepherd us for online teachers we get to choose ourselves. We can't understand how most of church history, everyone confessed there is no salvation outside of the church even though for all of church history until recently, they could have never imagined someone claiming to be a Christian who was not in the church. But our traditions convince us we really are part of the body of Christ. We have a small group, a campus ministry. We spend time with like-minded Christians in an organization. <laughs> the tradition of a personal faith is a beautiful thing, but not if we are dedicated to our own spirituality more than we are to the institutional church that Jesus Christ himself died for, organized, is building, and loves deeply. There are many such cases where we choose our traditions over God's commands today. 
So in verses 9 through 13, Jesus completes his critique of Pharisaical religion. The encounter started with the Pharisees coming to judge Jesus' disciples based on their own invented standards. Now Jesus will critique the Pharisees because he sees that their traditions, their teachings, allow people to avoid obedience. Again, it's kind of funny. We often caricature the Pharisees as their problem was they were too into obedience. Well, Jesus actually condemns them for the exact opposite reason. It's the exact 180. Jesus' disciples are not following the traditions of the elders, but those following the traditions of the Pharisees have found a way to use religion to avoid obedience. The practice Jesus uses as an example was a spiritual vow called korban. It's a kind of deferred giving. Um, somewhat like today where you could set aside your estate in your will to be given to some charity when you die, but live off the, that um, money or property until then. In that day, someone would declare their part of their property as korban, and it would pass into the possession of the priests for the purpose of the temple at their death or some date they declared. But this practice was subject to great abuse, according to Jesus. People had begun making this vow not to give something to God, but in order to prevent someone else from getting it. So while, of course, caring for needy family members was the obligation of every Jew, and especially if their parents were in need, because God commanded to honor your father and mother, well, it was unfortunate. Mom, Dad, I vowed the land, the, the property I could have sold to help you, to the temple. So I'm just going to have to keep using it, and I can't sell it to help you. They had found a way to avoid helping their family out of faithfulness to God. And that made Jesus angry. And we have many such cases today. We often allow ourselves to be negligent to ordinary life obedience if it is for the purpose of some more spiritual goal. This is why there is the unfortunate stereotype of pastor's kids, isn't it? Everyone knows pastor's kids are supposedly the waywards, the prodigals. They don't like the church. And there must be at least a little bit of truth to this stereotype since it's so pervasive. But it's because there is a constant temptation for pastors. Now, I'm just speaking to me right now. It's easy to neglect your family on the altar of ministry. Despite the fact that Paul says an elder must manage his own household well. The way you care for your family, the way you love your wife and teach your kids is the precise thing that qualifies you for ministry. Because the kind of man you are at home is actually the kind of pastor you are. This is not true, of course, just for pastors. For all of us, it's easy to neglect being a father or mother or son or daughter or brother or sister or employee or student for some greater spiritual goal we've set up. But the kind of father or mother or son or daughter or employee or student is the kind of Christian you are. You are not becoming more faithful to Christ if you are not being faithful to these callings. I'm going to skip a number of examples, but we have entire theologies today that exist to help us out of faithfulness to Christ, divorce ourselves from the Ten Commandments, avoiding the Ten Commandments. We think that there's a difference. 
because I want to skip to perhaps one of the most powerful traditions we use to feel spiritual when we disobey God, and that is emotionalism. It's very easy to justify disobedience today saying things like, I don't give, I don't obey, I don't submit because my heart's really not in it. We obey our emotions instead of obeying God. And in fact, we use our emotions rather than our obedience to determine if we are close to God. They are what matter really. They're who we really are. So if we can point to a handful of emotional moments in our lives, we can convince ourselves that our day-to-day obedience really isn't that important. It has less of a bearing on who we are. And we then judge everything in the Christian life by how it makes us feel. Worship, churches. The problem with this religion, the problem with the Pharisees' religion, the problem with any bad religion is the problem of any counterfeit. No matter how convincing it is, it does not have the value of the real thing. It is fake, and so it is costly. Because if a religion is what you've organized your life around, your values around, your beliefs and habits around, it's possible for you to organize your life around a scam. The Pharisees had a religion, and it never brought them near to God. In fact, it's worse than that. When God did come near to them in Jesus Christ, they couldn't even recognize him and rejected him. And if we have a religion that allows disobedience, if we have a religion that is external, the check engine light is on, we may have a religion that is actually drawing us apart from God. There is a little bit of good news when you run into counterfeits, though. It means there is something really valuable out there. You only counterfeit $100 bills because of what they're worth. You only fake art that's valuable. What God offers you at the heart of biblical religion is something of incalculable value. And you can reorganize your life around that. Remember what he said to the people. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. This is where real religion starts. Don't accept a counterfeit. Because you know what's better than looking like you're close to God? You know what's better than feeling close to God? Actually being close to God. You know what's better than external washings or pretending like you don't struggle with an embarrassing sin? Having them washed white as snow by Jesus Christ. And I know obedience is hard work, but so is creating a system of loopholes to avoid it. And only one of these two paths allows us to have a moment-by-moment fellowship with our Creator. Is the check engine light on? Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes. Lord, we need your help. We need you. We need you to protect us from errors. I pray that none of us will find out too late we are recovering Pharisees. God, I pray that you will give us clear eyes 
that we may see ourselves clearly as you do. That we are sinful, but can be loved in Christ. Help us avoid this danger that is present in every age. Thank you that Jesus loved us enough to warn us. We pray that we will follow him and live to his glory. Amen.